Amen. Well, what a glorious day. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter 4. And uh, as we begin, I want to show you a slide. I think we have it in there, Nathan. Uh, Yeah, perfect. So I want to show you the slide, and uh, as we've been walking through Acts, uh, the section that we're in right now, we see the disciples of Jesus are bearing witness to the resurrected Lord in Jerusalem. And this whole section that we are walking through at at this time uh, is following the witness in Jerusalem. And in this section, Luke alternates between internally looking at the life of the first church there in Jerusalem... Uh, And then externally to that church engaging in the community of the people around them. And so last week we concluded uh, at the end of uh, of, uh, chapter 4 verse 31. An external section that began with the lame man, the healing of him. uh, And uh, then ended with that prayer for boldness that we saw last week. Well, today, Luke takes our attention and he shifts it back internally to the life within the church of uh, Jesus Christ there in Jerusalem. So uh, today, as we uh, take our attention to this internal section, we'll begin reading in chapter 4 and verse 32, and it'll take us through chapter 5 and verse 11. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, Authoritative and sufficient word. Acts 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we begin, I want to draw your attention to two key phrases that we just read. Look first at verse 33. And great grace was upon them all. And then look at verse 11 of chapter 5. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great grace, great fear. I believe Luke intends for this, effect, or for this text to have two effects on us. Particularly on us as a church. I believe Luke intends for this text to have such an effect on us that we would be a community marked by grace And second, that we would be a community marked by fear. That we would be a community marked by grace and a community marked by fear. And that's what we see here in our text. We see in the church of Jerusalem a community marked by grace and a community marked by fear. Furthermore, we need to understand this reality. We cannot experience the grace of God without experiencing the fear of God. We cannot experience the grace of God without experiencing the fear of God. And right off the bat, to be clear, when we're talking about fear of God, uh, we need to be sure that we understand we're not talking about being uh, afraid or living in uh, a way that wants to run away from God. Uh, instead, it is a fear that a fear of reverence, a fear of, a, of the awareness of God's power. We'll talk more about that later, um, but just so we're clear, we'll, uh, we'll, be, we'll be getting into that. So let's get into the text, and we'll, Lord willing, see this truth that we cannot experience the grace of God without experiencing the fear of God. First, we see in this text a community marked by grace, which is what I hope that we all want us to be as a church as well, a community marked by grace. As we come to verse 32, Luke turns our attention again to life within this first church in Jerusalem. And the first thing he tells us about this church is their unity. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now that full number of believers may have been as many as 20,000 people. So that is a remarkable statement that that large group of people could have unity of heart and soul. In fact, unity in a group of people that size is nothing short of supernatural. And the genuineness of their unity of heart and soul was demonstrated outwardly by what Luke tells us next. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Their unity was such that they had everything in common. Even their belongings. 
to the extent that their attitude was, my stuff isn't even my stuff. These believers held their possessions with open hands, ready to give as soon as a need would arise. And the result of them having all of these things in common, having this open-handed attitude with their possessions and this unity, was what Luke says in verse 34, that there was not a needy person among them. And this is really the kind of community that a church is meant to be. A local church is made up of people who have been united to Christ by faith and who have been committed to one another. To care for one another in a holistic, a whole person sense. Spiritual and physical. Because I've committed to you and you have committed to me, I take responsibility for your discipleship. And you take responsibility for my discipleship. I care for you. I hold you accountable. You hold me accountable. I I encourage you. You encourage me because you belong to me as my fellow church member. And I belong to you as your fellow church member. Uh, But likewise, because we are committed to one another, there should never be a physically needy person in a committed local church either. We're united together so deeply that your needs are my needs if you have a bill that you can't pay but the rest of our church can pay it it's covered it's not a need anymore because your needs are our needs our needs are your needs we are members one of another we're a church we're committed to one another that's what we see here in this local body of believers such unity such such commonality that there was not a needy person among them And if the generosity of the Jerusalem church wasn't radical enough just by that description of the fact that there wasn't a needy person among them, they actually went even further than that. Look at what he goes on to say in the rest of verse 34. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any has need. So he makes this general statement about what life was like And then he gives a specific example of Barnabas doing this. Look at verse 36 and 37 again. Thus Joseph, which would also be called Barnabas, verse 37, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he gives one specific example of this widespread phenomenon within this church of people going and selling property in order to meet physical needs of their fellow church members. You know, it's one thing to hear about a need and in the moment, it, it pulls on your heartstrings, and you're like, oh, I, I got to give. And you have some spare cash on hand, and so you, you give. That's one thing, but really that might just be an impulsive decision based on emotion. It doesn't take the Holy Spirit for that. It's a whole other thing to go to the hassle of selling a property. <laughs> I mean, that can't be explained from a worldly perspective. If, I, if I'm just in my flesh and I hear about a need one day and I, I decide I want to give to it, if, I, if I'm just in my flesh the next day as I'm putting the for sale sign in the yard, I'm like, 
did I even really want to give anymore? Like, I, I wanted to give yesterday, you know, when I heard this emotional story, but now nah, I got to, you know, I got to go to a closing. I got to, uh, you know, talk to buyers. Like, do I, do I even want to do this anymore? It can't be explained by worldly wisdom. This hassle, this trouble, it, it showed that this was not just an emotionalistic, impulsive response. This was a commitment that came from a deep place. So, what could... What in the world could explain that kind of radical, hardworking, devoted generosity and unity? Well, the answer is found in, in the verse that I skipped. It's found in what was at the center of their life together. And I think it's no mistake that it's the verse that's in the center of this description that we have just seen. Look at verse 33. At the center of their life together was this. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. At the center of this community was the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus. The apostles were the ones that Jesus commissioned in Acts 1-8 to be his witnesses. And so they were powerfully proclaiming what they had seen and heard. The resurrected Lord Jesus. And what was the effect of the testimony, the giving of this testimony of the resurrection of Jesus with great power? Great grace was upon them. They proclaimed this message powerfully and this message had an effect of bringing the very grace of God on this community of believers. The, the undeserved favor and blessing, the powerful working of God's generosity on this group of people. The church experienced the grace of God through the message of the gospel. And what we see in this passage is that the grace of God is not just a nice sentiment. It's not just well-wishing or a good feeling. It is a transforming power. The grace that came to the disciples through the gospel formed a unity in the hearts of these disciples. It enabled them, it empowered them to share and give in a way that cannot be explained by worldly wisdom. It can only be explained by resurrection power. This was a community marked by grace. And if we are to be the kind of church that God intends for us to be, we must live out the transforming grace of the resurrection. Colossians 3, 1 says this, if you have been raised with Christ, right? This is the picture of baptism that we saw this morning. This picture of being raised with Christ in the likeness of his resurrection. Okay, if that's true, if you have been transformed by the resurrection of Jesus, if you have been raised with Christ, Paul says in Colossians 3, 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
if we have been saved by Jesus, we have received grace that is transformational. Grace that leads to a transformation in us that is as significant as Jesus going from being dead to having blood coursing through his veins again. That radical of a transformation. That's the kind of transformation that God's grace brings to all who trust in Jesus. If we are in Christ, our old self has died. It has been buried with Christ. And we have been raised with Christ. And with that resurrection comes a new life that we are to live. In Colossians 3... After Paul describes this reality of the resurrection of Christ and our united, being united with him in his resurrection, our old self being gone, new self being raised, what he goes on to say then and give is a list of things, therefore, that we are to put off and things that we are to put on. Those who have been changed by the resurrection have been given a resurrection power to put off the old ways of the flesh and the world and to put on the new ways of newness of life in Christ. So practically, living out the transforming grace of the resurrection means putting off our old ways that died with Christ and putting on the new ways of his resurrection life. We, if we are transformed by the grace of the resurrection, we will put off division and we will walk in the newness of life that is marked by unity within the body of Christ. Unity of heart and soul. We will put off selfishness so that now we can put on the newness of caring for one another. Whole person, inside and outside. If we're united to Christ in his resurrection, what we do is we put off greed so that now we can walk in the newness of life marked by outrageous generosity. May we as a church be marked by the transforming grace of the resurrection of Jesus. May we not settle for anything less than what can only be explained by the gospel. So we see this church was a community marked by grace. But of course, by the end of our passage... They are also a community marked by fear. A community marked by fear. So Luke gives us this amazing picture of this community. It's this picture of, of the grace of God at work. But we quickly discover not everything was perfect in this Jerusalem church. After sharing the positive example of Barnabas, who exhibited the gospel-centered unity and generosity that marked the church in general, Luke goes on to give a negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. And from the outside, what Barnabas did and what Ananias did would have looked identical. But behind the scenes, and most importantly, in their hearts, they couldn't have been more different. Ananias, we're told in verse 2, with the full knowledge of his wife, sold this property of theirs and decided to hold back part of the proceeds for himself before offering the rest to the church. And so Peter confronts Ananias in verse 3. Ananias, why 
has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of this land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, notice that Peter says, before Ananias sold the property, it belonged to him. In other words, Ananias and Sapphira would not have been wrong just to keep the property for themselves. They weren't obligated to sell it. it and it's also important that Peter said to Ananias that after the land was sold, it was at his disposal. In other words, they weren't obligated to give all of it to the church. Keeping a portion of the proceeds was not a sin in and of itself. So what was their sin? Well, Peter says it explicitly. He names it. They lied. They lied. They sold the property for this much. They brought this much, and they said, oh, no, this is the whole price. This is what the field sold for. It's the whole thing. We're giving you all the proceeds, even though they had held back. It seems that they wanted to appear as though they were generous as Barnabas, but without having to give that which they were clinging to, without having to give up this money that they were wanting to keep. They wanted the appearance of radical generosity without having to give up that which they loved. So Peter recognizes that what has happened among them is the activity of Satan. The enemy of God's people was at work, even in the heart of a member of this church. But lest we think that Ananias then was not responsible for what he did, Peter makes it clear in verse 4 that Ananias himself contrived this deed in his heart. He did it. Satan was at work. Ananias chose to do it. Ultimately, Peter says, Ananias lied to God. He may have thought he was just lying to, Ananias, or to, to Peter or the apostles or even the whole church, but Peter is clear. Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. He lied not to man, but to God. In verse 5, then, we see the God whom Ananias sinned against acts swiftly to deal with the sin that has been committed. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Ananias sinned. God judged. And the people feared. Then three hours later, Sapphira comes in. And she doesn't know what's happened. Peter asks her in verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And notice, he, he gives Sapphira a chance to come clean. But tragically, she sticks to the script of deception that she and her husband devised together. Yeah, for so much. That's it. Total price. So like he did with Ananias, he confronts Sapphira in verse 9. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Again here, Peter makes it clear that Ananias and Sapphira had ultimately sinned against the Lord. Yes, they had conspired together to lie to the apostles in the church, but what they, 
what they failed to realize is that Jesus is the head of the church. The church is Jesus' body. And he exercises his authority through the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. So Ananias and Sapphira's plot was ultimately what Peter describes as a test of the Spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit sent from the Lord Jesus. So essentially Peter says, do you not understand who reigns here? Do you not understand what it means to lie to us, lie to this church? Do you not understand who is in charge? You may have been able to pull a fast one on Peter, but Peter's not in charge here. Your test, your sin was against the holy God, and he will not be mocked. So Peter says, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Imagine the rush of shock and guilt coming over her as she realizes not only that she had been caught, that her husband had already died and been buried, and then, verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young man came and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So Sapphira came to the apostles just like Ananias did. She lied to the apostles just like Ananias did. She was rebuked just like Ananias was. So she died just like Ananias did. And the same young men who buried her, buried her uh, next to her husband. So then look at the effect that this has in verse 11. Here's what God's up to. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This whole church marked by the grace of God. The great grace that was upon them now was also marked by great fear upon them. And not only this whole church, but all who heard about it, as the story spread, as the news spread, there was fear struck in the hearts of everyone who heard about what was unmistakably the work of God. They were filled with great Fear, fear of God. They had witnessed the awesome power of God on display. They learned that it is no accident that the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. Our God, as we sang together this morning, is holy, holy, holy. He does not tolerate sin. The eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see. Fear is a fitting response to this story. Fear is a fitting response by the people who saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Because fear of God is precisely the thing that Ananias and Sapphira lacked. They did not have any fear of God. Fear of God involves a reverence toward God's moral purity. The fact that he is flawless. Fear of God involves a respect for his awesome power. Fear of God involves great humility. 
the fear of God involves a profound awareness that we live our lives before the sight of God. The almighty creator. The holy one. We live every moment of every day in our heart, outside, in our physical world, every moment of every day with the eyes of the holy, almighty God on us. And we are accountable to him. What he thinks matters more than anything. In fact, what he thinks is the only thing that matters. But Ananias and Sapphira, they did not take God into the equation. They cared about their money. They cared about keeping up appearances with the church. But they did not stop to consider what the holy God would think of their actions. Or if they did, they thought so little of him that they went through with it anyway. And notice... They had not experienced the fear of God. We see that clearly. They're not considering the reality. They're not expressing reverence toward God's moral purity. They're not realizing that lying to men is lying to God. They're not living this profound awareness that they're living life before him. They think they can get away with this because they have no fear of God. And that is paired with the fact that they were not experiencing the same transformational power of God's grace that the rest of the disciples were experiencing. So we, we saw this example of Barnabas, which contrasts with Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas had been transformed by grace. The grace of the resurrection of Jesus had given him a new life marked by radical generosity. Unity, sharing, generosity that can only be explained by the powerful working of God through his grace. That's what Barnabas had. It was the real thing only God could bring. Ananias and Sapphira had a cheap imitation again on the outside it kind of looks similar but what they had was not explained by the grace of god what they had was explained by human foolishness they tried to look as generous as barnabas on the outside they tried to take a dead tree and staple apples to it and say it's bearing fruit but they were caught in their they were caught as imposters. They did not experience the genuine transformation of the grace of God. And that, we see, goes right along with the fact that they were not living in the fear of God. And Scripture would have us understand that underneath their lack of transformation from grace, the, the fact that they didn't have this new life from the grace of God, uh, underneath that, was the reality that they did not fear the Lord. It was because they did not fear the Lord that they did not experience the transformation of his grace. We must recognize that we cannot experience the grace of God without experiencing the fear of God. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 16.
Proverbs chapter 16 and look at verse 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, those are things that come from God. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity, sin is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. The grace of God that atones for sins and transforms our hearts cannot be separated from the fear of God that leads us to repentance, that leads us to turn away from evil. Let me unpack this. Here's the gospel. The good news of Jesus It begins with the fact that God is holy. He is holy, 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 flawless. And we are sinners, flawed in every heart of us. And the more we realize that God is holy and that we are accountable to him, the more we realize how sinful we are. The more we compare ourselves to him and his purity, the more we recognize our impurity, our failure, our transgressions, uh, the fact that we we are stained, that we are corrupt, that we are evil. And the more that we grow in in fear of the Lord, revering his moral purity, uh, understanding his holiness, his greatness, his power. And the more we realize that we're accountable to him, that God sees everything that we do, every thought we have, every attitude, every intention. The more that that fear of the Lord, that recognition of who he is marks us, the more we realize the vast, vast difference between God and us. The fact that we are hopeless on our own helpless on our own before a holy god we stand condemned we stand impure unrighteous and the more that we fear the lord the more that we recognize our sinfulness the greater our the depth of our depravity is in our eyes the more we realize we have an incredible problem and we have no solution in and of ourselves And that drives us to this reality that the holy God has given a solution. The God who is holy, holy, holy. The the son of God who existed in glory for all of eternity, who knew no sin, came and he took on the form of a man. He came as a servant. He lived a perfect life flawless life fully god fully man flawless but god the father made jesus who knew no sin to be sin for you this holy god who never knew a flaw or a stain in his life, absorbed, took on himself the sins of the world. And God, the Holy One, the one that we are all accountable to, the one who should judge every one of us, like he did Ananias and Sapphira, took the wrath, the full 
cup of his wrath and he poured it out on his holy son who he had made to become sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We who are flawed, we who are imperfect, we who could never get it right, we who are without a solution in and of ourselves, we who are hopeless, helpless, under God's judgment and condemnation on our own, God made a way for him to look at us and say, flawless, perfect, beautiful, loved, righteous, not because of anything in and of ourselves, but because Jesus became the perfect substitute. Because Jesus made the great exchange. His righteousness for our sin. And the more we realize how deep our depravity was, how great the wrath of God was that our sins deserved, how holy this God is, how unnecessary any of this was for God to be God, the more we realize this is amazing grace. It's unthinkable. Only a sovereign, wise, loving, good God could come up with a plan like that. How amazing is the grace of God that he could transform sinners like you and me into the very righteousness of God. That is grace enough to transform hearts. That is grace that brings dead people to life. That is grace that transforms us from being slaves to sin to being slaves to the Lord Jesus. When we see that kind of grace, that the free gift of God, eternal life, righteousness, love, eternal joy in God, that when we see that that is laid out before us for free to sinners who don't deserve it and did nothing to earn it, we want to repent. We want to repent from this evil against our God. We want to turn away from living for ourselves and trusting ourselves. We want to turn away and turn to God. Who freely lavishes his grace on us. His steadfast love and faithfulness that atones for our iniquity. We experience the grace of God transforming us as we grow in the fear of of the Lord, and it leads us to turn away from, an, from evil. We live transformed by grace, continuing in the fear of the Lord. One of the things that marks the new life, the transformed life of grace, is continuing in fear. In Colossians 3 and verse 22. Paul gives instructions to bondservants. He says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. We saw the opposite of that verse in Ananias and Sapphira, didn't we? They only served by way of eye service. They only served as 
people pleasers. They served without sincerity of heart. They served instead with deception of heart, not fearing the Lord. But when those who have been raised with Christ, as Paul says at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, experience the grace of God, we continue in fearing the Lord. Not caring what people think, not aiming to please men, but walking in the fear of the Lord, recognizing that my life has lived before this God who is holy, who has saved me. And I care what he thinks. I care about honoring him in the heart when no one else sees more than anything. When we are a community that's marked by fear, that that recognizes God's holiness and, and power, that recognizes our sinfulness and the radical transformation of his grace, then we will take sin seriously within the church. And we'll recognize that we do not do anyone any favors by letting them think that they have received the grace of God without being transformed by the grace of God. If Peter had known Ananias and Sapphira were faking it, that they were just living for themselves but trying to look like a Christian, look like someone who had been transformed by grace. If he had known that, and he had given them a pat on the back, yeah, look at you, you're so generous. That would have been damning to them. That would have been unloving to them. Peter would have been then lying to them, just like they had lied to him. To say, yeah, you're good, your life is fine, you're in a great place. We don't do anyone any favors letting them live out a faux Christianity, a faux life of righteousness, when really they have never known the grace of God. They've never understood their sin in fear of God and turned to receive the grace of God. 1 Timothy 5, 20, Paul encourages Timothy, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. For the love of God and for the love of every person in our sphere of influence. We must insist on the grace of God that changes hearts. Out of fear of God, recognizing what he thinks matters more than anything. We must insist on the grace of God that transforms hearts. And we must not accept any cheap imitation. Um, A while back, a pastor friend of mine, along with his fellow elders, began meeting with a man who had been attending their church. He had been in attendance in their church for years, and he wanted to become a member. His knowledge of the Bible was impressive. He was very kind. Most people in their church, in a pew on Sunday morning, assumed He was a Christian. They had no doubt in their minds, likely. But as the elders got to know him and consider him for membership, they discovered uh, that the man was an alcoholic. And that he harbored a lot of bitterness in his heart. So there were two patterns in this man's life of clearly unrepentant sin. And because of this, the elders would not recommend him for church membership. They understood That when a church admits a member 
as a member to the church, that church is saying, we affirm that this person is a Christian. We affirm that this person has been transformed by the grace of God. And they also understood the reality of 1 Corinthians 6, that the unrighteous, including explicitly drunkards, will, inherit the kingdom, will, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So they could not affirm this man. Doing so would have not been doing him any favors. Uh, they could not affirm this man. He was living in unrepentant sin. And, and so they, they couldn't in good conscience say this, this, this man uh, was a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And when confronted about his sin, this man did not understand why he couldn't become a church member. He wanted to be accepted just the way he was, without any transformation, without any change. And so instead of repenting, instead of seeing his sin before a holy God and turning from it to receive the grace of God, instead of repenting, he continued to insist that they make him a member. Not unlike what we saw in Acts 5, he wanted the appearance of being just like the rest of the church, but without having to give up the sin that he was clinging to. Well, like I said, they, they declined. And a while after being declined once, the man actually pursued membership in the church a second time. Uh, but as the elders met with him again, they discovered that he was still living in the same patterns of unrepentant sin, clinging to that sin, unwilling to give it up, just as he was the first time. Now, so if you take a step back and think about what this looks like in the life of a church. Uh, after a man has attended a church for a while, everyone knows him. Everyone's heard him talk about the Bible. It becomes difficult uh, to refuse this man membership. In fact, uh, my friend shared, the thought even crossed his mind, are, are, we, are we being too strict here? Should we fudge a little bit? And uh, a fear of man would tempt one to think that. But in the end, he recognized the truth that we've seen in Acts 4. That when the gospel truly takes effect in a person, it brings transformation that cannot be explained by anything except the grace of God. And this man had not, had clearly not been transformed by the grace of God. And so, my friend, his other elders, out of fear of God, thinking more about what he thinks than anyone else, decided to be faithful to Scripture and not admit this man into membership a second time. The man continued to attend their church Sunday after Sunday, but he remained unchanged. And one day, not long after that, the man got drunk again like he did every day before. But this particular day, he got in a fight with his neighbor, and he murdered him, and they killed himself. The man had been in the pew the Sunday morning before. And do you know what my pastor friend had preached that Sunday morning? Ananias and Sapphira. God, in his kindness, that Sunday before, had given this man a chance. Sunday after Sunday, he had given him chance after chance to repent, to, to fear God. To recognize that what God thinks is more important than anything else. A chance to repent and receive his free grace for sinners. He had given him chance after chance after chance to repent. Even the Sunday before, his grace, his kindness 
was waiting for his repentance, but the man never did. He never did fear God. He never did give up clinging to his sin. He never did receive the grace of God to transform his heart. So what was the result, do you think, on that church? Well, I'll tell you, fear came over them all. They were deeply sobered by the reality of the depth of the man's sin. And they were moved to take seriously the holiness of God. But not only that, they became even more committed to the powerful transformation that comes from the grace of God. The kind of life that true Christians lead is not a life that can be explained by worldly people living fleshly lives and putting up a front of righteousness. The kind of life that true Christians lead is not a life that can be mustered up by hard work. The kind of life that true Christians lead can only be explained by the life-changing power of the free grace of God. No sinner can clean himself up. Only God, with his free, undeserved favor, can transform a heart. So may we be a church that is committed to the grace of God. May we not be content with anything less than that which only God can do. And may we continually walk in the fear of the Lord, living in the reality of Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Before we conclude in prayer, um, as we were in family Bible study this morning, the Lord just laid something on my heart. Um, it was after I had already finished my notes. Um, we were praying together as a family in family Bible study today. Uh, praying for my daughter. Doesn't know the Lord. She's two and a half. Um, and this text and these realities were just weighing heavy on me. And the practical reality of what these twin truths of fearing God and experiencing the grace of God mean. I, I realized that the best thing that I can do, if I want my daughter to be radically transformed by the grace of God, the free grace of God toward undeserving sinners who do nothing to earn it, if I want her to experience that, the best thing that I can do for her is teach her the fear of the Lord. Teach her that God is holy, he is perfect, that we are accountable to him. God sees everything, he knows everything, that he does not let the guilty go unpunished, that he is a holy and righteous God. The best thing I can do is to help her realize one day the depth of her depravity, her helplessness on her own, and the vast chasm that stands between her and God. Do you know when now? When I discipline her and talk about the way she disobeyed for the dozen, <laughs> dozenth time that day, sometimes, often, she says to me, Daddy, it's hard. It's hard. And it is because you can't do it on your own. 
You can't do it on your own. The only, only, only way is the grace of God. Selah, the only way you'll have any hope is the grace of God. And he offers it freely in Jesus for you. He can give you a new heart. He can transform your life just like Hannah and bring you from death to life. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray that we, like the church in Jerusalem, would have great fear come upon us. Lord, a profound awareness of your holiness, your omniscience, your greatness, your power, your perfection, your righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would be filled with a profound sense of our unworthiness, our desperation, our sinfulness before you. And Lord, that when we see that and see the depth of your grace for sinners like us, I pray that we would be swept up into the wonder that is your love. I pray that we would be moved to see the forgiveness that you offer in Christ. And Lord, that we would recognize that we would be fools to still hold on to our sin. That we would be fools to not receive your free gift of grace and forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that that grace would transform our lives. It would transform us in such a way that we would go even deeper into a life of fearing you and living for only you. Uh, it would transform us in a way that would give us the freedom of, of life in Christ, of pursuing righteousness by the power of your grace, not by our efforts. Lord, I pray that, Lord, our fear of you would be high. And that our understanding of your grace and that our experience of your grace would be vast. Lord, work in our hearts through your word as it continues to do its work long after this day is over. Lord, may we increasingly fear you, love you, trust you, and honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand here.